Raising black children in the United States can be really scary. And as a black mother, I realized I was parenting from fear. And I wanted to make a commitment to parent for liberation. You are listening to the Parenting for Liberation podcast, and I am your host, Trina Green-Brown. Each week, I am joined by other black parents, and we discuss our own journeys to push past our fear so that we can raise our beautiful black children to be whole, free, and liberated. Wake up, everybody, no more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much. Hi, this is Trina Green-Brown with Harrington for Liberation. For this podcast, I'm actually being interviewed by another podcaster, Lee Schneider, host of Baby Crazy. Today we're talking about how to help your kids be aware of social justice, how to have racially conscious conversations with your kids, and talk to them about race differences. Today I'm speaking with Trina Green-Brown. You may know her from the Parenting for Liberation podcast, Recognized as a black feminist rising in 2017 by Black Women's Blueprint, Trina brings 15 years of experience as a youth organizer in ending violence with her personal role as a parent of two black children. She calls herself a proud black feminist mama activist. She has contributed to On Parenting for The Washington Post, and in 2019, her writing will be featured in two anthologies centered on intersections of motherhood and activism. Here's my conversation with Trina Green-Brown. Trina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Lee, for having me. So excited to be here and to talk to you about raising race-conscious children. Let's get into it. So you're raised in L.A., live in Orange County. And when we were talking the other day, you mentioned, and I agreed, that racism seems more explicit in the last few years. It's a topic we have to discuss with our kids. So how do we do it? How do we have racially conscious conversations? It is important for us to have conversations about race with our children. And growing up, those conversations weren't had Um, in previous generations. They weren't as explicit. We just used the colorblind narrative that, you know, all of us are the same. We're all of the human race. You know, there's only one race, but the human race. And now with our current presidential and political climate, it's really important that we are more explicit about race because we are seeing like racist bigotry and hearing a lot of anti Um, language that are like anti-Semitic, anti-immigration, you know, just a lot of antagonistic language coming from government. And so we have to create the responding voice. And it's not just for us as the adults, but also how do we have our young people, our children starting to be able to have those conversations about what does it mean to be different, celebrate difference, appreciate the diversity of our great nation? um, And how do we have those conversations with our kids early? Yeah, that's an interesting question. How early? When does this start? It's really important to start as early as possible. Like it happens. um, Research shows that kids begin to identify and see difference as early as four in school. And so we can have those conversations with our kids before they begin to make up their own narratives. So when you're picking your baby books, for example, are you picking books that all the main characters are white? Um, Or are you picking books that have diversity? Do you have books that have characters that are African-American, that are queer, that are Native or Indigenous, that are Latino? Or do they have brown skin? You know, are there characters who have disabilities? Do you see someone in a wheelchair? Do you see someone with crutches? Like, how do you begin to show diversity as early as reading those early children's books? And like a lot of um, research has been shown about how white are 
children's books are here. Um, and there's a real effort right now to expand and increase the number of books that have um, diverse characters for children. So you've brought along a stat, uh, which I want to read now, about how most children's books depict white children. In 2012, the Cooperative Children's Book Center reviewed 3,600 children's books. Only 3% were about African Americans. Asian and Pacific Americans were featured in 2%, followed by Latinos with less than 2%, and American Indians at 1%. So this digs a little bit deeper into the idea of take a look at the books you have on the bookshelf and consider more diversity, consider what world those books are depicting. And in addition to the books on the bookshelves in our homes, it's not only those books that are teaching our kids history, it's in schools. What are the narratives that our kids are learning? Um, Particularly, for example, like I'm a parent advocate. So my son's school, as many California schools do in fourth grade, they do the California missions exploration where they have to build the mission and they go to mission visits or they they read about the California missions and they read about it from this very narrow, skewed perspective as if, you know, the Native Americans, indigenous folks here really just needed and wanted these missions to come over. And they don't acknowledge that you know, the Native Indigenous folks were pillaged, killed, basically it was genocide of a whole community that existed here. Um, and so I emailed my son's teacher because she had emailed me that, you know, the mission unit was coming up for fourth grade. And I emailed her three articles and was like, this is not going to be helpful for my child. I'm willing to com- connect with you and to support you to expand the unit to include Indigenous experiences, indigenous storytellers, um, even inviting in if we can find some local indigenous folks to our community. So we're on the Tongva land here in Los Angeles, and it's a thriving indigenous community here in Los Angeles, and they don't have federal recognition, but they are a California-recognized tribe. And so I emailed the teacher this, and guess what? She canceled the unit. She's like, we're not going to do that unit. It doesn't seem helpful. You just came to our class and talked about advocacy. I appreciate you advocating. Um, And so we're going to think about ways that this teacher and other teachers in the school can begin to really talk about California's history in a very robust way that's honest and truthful and transparent about our history. And so when we think about books, it's not only about the books and the pictures in our in our children's books. It's also about like books. Who writes history? Exactly. Who writes history? Yeah. And then what's the history that's being taught in our schools to our young people? And so I always encourage parents to supplement any school learning, like check out your child's history book and then check out what's missing or look at how communities are depicted. You know, there was this huge uproar in the South where they described slavery as African-Americans who wanted to come to the United States for opportunities like like that is not slavery. And so we have to look at who's writing history. And this is why it's important, not only that children's books feature images of African-American, Asian Pacific Islander, Latino, or indigenous, that they're not only featured by them, but those are the people who are writing the books. Who gets to tell the story is important. So when you buy books, also look at the author. Flip that book over. Who wrote that book? Is it another white person who's writing a book about indigenous culture? Well, that might not be the best option. So it's not only about the images, it's also about who's the writer, who gets to tell history. Who gets to tell history, really important. It's about the reclamation of narrative and making sure that the narrative is honest and transparent. Right. Like when the kids ask why, then our policies, our laws, our schools need to be able to answer those questions truthfully. Right. It's so powerful, that notion of who gets to tell history. Now, let's say I want to find some of those books. 
Who do I ask? Where do I go? Is the public library okay? Yes, the public library is great. There's lots of um, work being done on that. So if you look up Marley Diaz, it's an 11-year-old girl who wanted to collect uh, a thousand books with black girls as the lead characters. And so she like collected those books and, you know, she's now an editor at Essence Magazine. And so... She, like, created a wave of increasing the number of books that have um, African-American girls. There's also um, organizations that are pulling those books, like Raising Race Conscious Children. Um, So there's lots of places. If you just search, like, um, books that are for diversity, um, there's lots of options now. There's a huge um, increase. Um, Not as much. Like, we still don't have as many books that we would need to really show the real diversity. But there's a huge um, search. So you could totally go to your public library, check out Amazon, check out Barnes & Noble. And I really want to encourage folks to go to their local, like, small business bookstores, especially those owned by communities of color. And we have some here in Los Angeles, SO1 Books in Leimert Park area. So there's options. There's places. There's a lot of messaging coming from on high, the president, the government, about immigration, attacks on people of color, attacks on people with differences. I feel as a parent, I constantly have to hold the line. I'm some kind of role model now, and I have to answer a lot of questions that I don't know the answers to, these deep, difficult questions from a little kid. I never had to do that before because we've never had a situation in my lifetime quite like this. I have to be a role model, a bigger role model, than I thought I really would have to be. So when I started Parenting for Liberation, it really was about how do I raise liberated children? And so I do work, been doing work for years in social justice around resisting those narratives that we are currently experiencing at a higher and more explicit level of antagonistic language and bigotry from our government. I've been doing the work to resist that, to shift the narrative, to provide alternative views, really fighting for liberation and justice. And then now as a parent, I've been really exploring what does it mean to raise our children to be liberated within the system, within the climate um, that really wants to strip away their humanity. And so being a role model feels like a lot of pressure for parents. But I think my experience has been it's not as much about trying to show or tell our young people how to be. It's about being in the practice of exploring it together. So you might not know the answers. Be honest with your child. I don't know. Let's figure it out together. And then also ask them what do they think? Because they've only been on the planet for a little bit. And sometimes, like, in certain cultures, there's a belief that, like, young people, children are more close to our ancestors than we are. So they have more information than we have about what's possible. And so we're, the world is theirs. When we go, it's going to be theirs. So why don't we ask them what they think? Young people have so many answers. I have one of a podcast I had with um, Cecilia Caballero, um, and she was discussing a a shooting that had happened nearby her home with her, I think he was then six-year-old son. And she asked him, what do you think the solution should be? Because there was a police-involved shooting. And his answer, he told her, get out a sheet of paper, and I'm going to just talk. And she wrote it down. And he wrote this beautiful piece about, like, what should we do instead of violence? And he had this beautiful vision about, like, transform a police station and guns into this, like, beautiful other world of, like, dinosaurs and art and museums. It was something that was so beautiful. But the solution that he came up with was not about policing people or criminalizing people or incarcerating people. It was about creating 
opportunities to explore dinosaurs. And, you know, it sounds like very like childlike. But when I think about what is the world we want to create for our children, it's really the opportunity for them to vision the world they want to live in. Um, And if that means transforming policing to something more creative, then let's look to them for the answers. We don't have to always have them. Um, But I think it is important to engage them in the conversation. I think that's what sometimes is really scary for parents. Like, I don't want to talk about racism with my child because it's going to make them racist. A lot of people think that. Or if I talk about racism or race or point out that we're white or point out that we're black, then it's going to make them more aware. But there's nothing wrong with awareness. It's what you do. Because if we don't raise awareness and imagine that it's not an issue, then we end up with the kind of government that we have. Exactly. It's so important to let kids ask the questions, at least. And I'm just underscoring what you said a moment ago. I just want people to remember that. Let them ask the questions. You may not have all the answers. As a kid growing up on the East Coast in a white liberal community, you know, we were all the same. It was all the idea of there's no, we don't see color here. Now, that's my point of reference. When I talk to my kid, that's the index card that flips up in my mind. How do I need to change that? I don't want to say what is wrong with that because it's kind of the way I am, you know, if I'm just going to be honest. But what needs to change about that and why and how? Yeah, I think that was totally not my experience growing up. So I think that's a a privileged experience, to be honest. Um, the ability to go through the world and never have to think about my race is something that did, doesn't exist for particularly communities of color, um, African-American communities, brown communities, or communities that are just not the, the dominant culture, right? So if I'm Muslim, if I am someone with disabilities, like folks who have lived experiences that are not in within the dominant mainstream culture of white um, and maybe even heterosexual, right? Folks who don't live within the dominant mainstream culture um, are often raising their children to think and to be explicit about your race or or what makes you different. Why, though? Why Why is that good to do? Or why is it just the practice? I think for communities of color, it's necessary for our safety. You know, I have to talk to my son about what does it mean to be a black boy in Orange County and, you know, how folks may experience you, how folks might see you or listen to you or be impacted by you. And so I have to do that for his own safety and protection. And so that's why I do it. But I don't want to only do it from a place of fear based. I don't want to only be raising his attention to his race from a place of like, this is to protect you. I also want to be raising his awareness of his race, his culture, so that he can be affirmed, to be proud of his differences and to celebrate that, um, to celebrate his culture and his history and his ancestry and his legacy. And so from that frame point, I think all cultures could and should spend time with their young people, encouraging them to notice and learn about their own cultural ancestry, their history, um, and like we can increase cultural awareness and celebration of diversity in our communities. And I think it's really important for folks who identify as white to also raise the conversations about racial difference so that they can begin to have their young people and their children be aware of their privileges. Um, If we have white families talking to their kids about race, talking to their kids about white privilege, talking to their kids about the history of racism or race in the United States and begin to learn about the ways that race and folks who identify as white um, have had, you know, different privileges, that it can begin to peel away some of the hierarchy that exists. You know, our young people can be the generation where we can really talk about equity in a real way. 
How do you do that is there's so many books about it. So I can send a list of the different books that have those explicit conversations. But again, when your kids are younger and they don't have like um, the language or the context around racism or equity, um, there are ways to just have those conversations when you're reading a book um, by noticing like, oh, look at this culture. What do you see about this culture? Look at this person's skin. Look at this. This person has beautiful curly hair. Um, This character you know, has beautiful brown skin, you know, to really start to acknowledge and celebrate difference even while you're reading. And um, there's an organization called Raising Race Conscious Children. They have curriculum for parents and webinars for parents um, who want to have those conversations about race with their children and feel really uncomfortable about it. Um, But they also believe that it's important to not avoid race, but to have race conscious conversations with our children. A big issue, too, is immediacy. It's not in the past. The way this was taught to me was, oh, that's Martin Luther King. You know, that's like fire hoses and Selma. This is now. This is happening now. And one, if I can say, good thing about what's going on now is a raising of awareness among the privileged classes, among white people, realizing this is us. This is now. This is happening right now to Jews, to people of color, you know, you had a a synagogue shooting, you have police brutality, all of that's happening now. It's not something that's in some kind of history book or a fuzzy old YouTube video that has no relevance to me today. That is absolutely right. It is happening now, and it has been happening for years, for decades, for centuries. So we as people of color are not happy that it's happening now because it's always been happening, but it's, you know, great that now folks who have privileged experiences can witness and experience it um, because it's impacting their lives. And so we're glad that you all are coming on board, you know, joining marches, joining protests, you know, starting organizations, supporting the work of organizations like Black Lives Matter, really supporting the work of the anti-immigration campaigns that are about, like, not separating families Um, and keeping our children out of cages and fighting detention. So really have um, really seen a swell and an increase of activism. Um, I do see an increase of, you know, white feminism and, you know, white allies showing up in all of these different organizing supports. So I do see the increase. And, you know, it is immediate. It is urgent. Yeah, this this conversation about social justice is really a conversation about life. It's a conversation that is part of our everyday conversation. It's not something like, let's set aside some time to talk about social justice. Yesterday was election day. And when my wife and I went to the polls with our young son, the roster for us for with our names on it hadn't arrived mysteriously. And we all were handed provisional ballots. I thought that was highly suspicious. And we got a taste, my wife and I, of what election tampering is like, what it's like to have your name removed from the election rolls, what it's like to wait an hour online and then be told, well, you can't vote or you can't vote the way you wanted to. That was a conversation that we had right there. We went home and called the ACLU. We called the secretary of state. We tweeted Rachel Maddow. My wife ended up on the CBS News talking about it. But our kid was there watching us go through all this and watching us struggle and watching us be angry and watching us do something about it. That was kind of interesting. I can't recall in my childhood my parents having to approach anything like that. So, yeah, what you experienced was a form of voter suppression, and that is happening 
has been happening for years, um, voters' rights infringement, voter suppression. And it was literally happening, as you described, in this current midterm election. Um, And that was happening in the South, the Deep South. There was lots of organizing in black communities. Um, It was also happening in indigenous communities. There was a lot of native voter suppression that was happening. And so the ability to have those conversations right now, it's not something that's happening in the past. It's happening right now. And then also you modeling for your child what it means to advocate for yourself and you moving forward and having that conversation and modeling that we need to do something about it. We need to speak up for ourselves. We need to advocate. And I think, you know, I would be curious about what the next step could be beyond the individual personal experience to then look at what is the connection of your individual experience to the experience of voter suppression in other places, right? Like how could you help your child and also yourself see if this is happening to me, imagine what's happening in other communities or happening to communities of color. You know, I had a friend who posted about their own voter suppression in New York City. So we think that voter suppression is only happening in the South or, you know, in super red states, but it's happening even in the most progressive places. You know, you're here in Los Angeles. My colleague is in New York City. And I think the the difference in the experiences was that you felt empowered to do something about it, where some folks, it's not safe. It's not safe for some communities of color to be able to fight back because their own safety for their own security. And so it is helpful and necessary for allies such as yourself to use your privilege, to leverage your privilege and access to then do something to raise awareness about voter suppression, as an example. So I really do think that's necessary for our allies to be able to speak up when it when not only when they experience it, but when they witness the experience of other communities being disenfranchised or being suppressed. It's this advocate personality, how to be an advocate. A kid is powerless. They shouldn't be, but often they're in a powerless position because they're small. But we have to somehow, and you've taught this in classrooms and in lots of formats, how do you get a child or a kid or a young person to understand that it's okay to be an advocate, it's okay to fight for yourself, it's okay to want to change things? I I would have to disagree with you slightly about kids being powerless mm-hmm. because I feel yeah, I saw you kind of hmm, what's <laughs> I was like hmm. um, as someone who did youth organizing work and youth empowerment work I'm like young people have power um, we know we experienced the the student march and the student walkout in March of 2018 and they also had the march on DC the march on Washington young people in droves showed up and are really pushing to shift policies around guns um, after the violent shooting that has happened at multiple schools. And so young people do have voices. I recall an 11-year-old African-American girl who spoke at that rally. This young woman, young girl, Naomi, has really spoke out about, you know, racism and the connections between racism and gun violence. And, And so I just wanted to name that young people do have power and agency. They might not know how to use it if they don't have strong adult allies who support them and really are really checking their own ageism and making sure that they're not getting in the way. How I've done that in the past, I've done a lot of youth organizing work, youth empowerment work here in Los Angeles. And now as a parent, I make it my responsibility to encourage my child to be an advocate and also encourage his fellow students at his school. So I go into schools um, regularly and I help them identify like what are the issues or causes that matter the most to them and they might be things 
that might not seem as like massive as racism or injustice, but those are issues that young people care about. For example, my son goes to a small school with small classes and in his classroom, the young girls are outnumbered. And so the young girls, when I got there and I was talking about, you know, what are some issues or rights or causes that they care about? And the young girls were like, we really want to have more equality with the young girls in the class because the boys take up a lot of space and they, you know, don't listen to our ideas and, you know, they don't want to play certain games with us. And so we started to talk about gender equity and what does it mean for young girls to have the same rights? And they were talking about, you know, they wanted to run for office and, So then they had like about a week later, the teacher emailed me after my lesson about advocacy Um, and she emailed me and she said that the girls in the class, they had a -a fit-a-thon where they like do a workout competition, that the girls in the class were adamant about doing more push-ups than the boys (laughs) and that the boys were supporting them and cheering them on. So, you know, I don't want to get explicit into the gender binary, but I do want to name an example of young people being able to identify the issues in their own lives. It's not about just having them be able to see like, okay, racism on a large scale. It's also about the day to day. Like, what am I doing every day in school? Who am I choosing to play with? Am I picking on certain kids? Am I making fun of other kids? Um, How can I be a bystander? If I see a kid being teased, what's my responsibility as an advocate to stand up and say, that's not fair. We shouldn't do that. You know, are the young people noticing who's in the classroom and who's not? who's who's reading at a certain level and who's not. It's not only about the students, it's about the teachers. We have to create cultures in schools where everyone feels like they're being an advocate so that we can make sure that those who are most impacted by the multiple oppressions of our nation have equal or equitable access and resources. So that's the kind of work that I do. And it's possible. Young people have so many ideas and there's so many books about it. Like, There's three books that I took to the class, and then I let the teacher keep them to teach lessons on them throughout the week. So one book was um, Why We March. And that's a book about, like, why do you protest? How do you start a protest? How do you make signs? What is the safety protocol? And it was it's a children's book. And so the kids, after doing that, we read that book. They made protest signs in the classroom. And then they wanted to schedule a day to walk around the school where they could, like, hold their protest signs. And the protest signs range from no bullying, everyone's welcome here, two things about immigration. Like some kids were saying, like, we need to keep families together because they are aware of what's happening in the world. Um, So that was one book. Another book is about, explicitly because we live in Orange County, is around a case that happened in Orange County around the school districts and, like, separating of white children and Mexican children um, in the 70s. So it wasn't that long ago. Um, and so so I shared that book with the teacher as well. And I can send you a list of different books that we that, that folks can just begin to have conversations with kids about a- advocacy. And then there was one book that I started reading with them that had nothing to do with any social justice issue. It was about a young boy whose whole family was a, a family of hockey players and he didn't want to play hockey. He wanted to just ice skate. And so he like made his own little protest. He refused to play hockey. He made a little sign. And he advocated for himself, and then his parents eventually let him ice skate. But it was a lot around gender identity that only girls do ice skating in that way. And so so even there's like there's lots of little stories that are available that are not explicitly talking about race or inequity or social justice that you can still make those connections. And so encouraging parents to, as you're reading those books, to start to make those connections and start to ask those questions. It really seems, again, this idea of Let's roll it into everyday life. Let's just talk about this as a as a part of life. 
You're talking about this 11-year-old girl who had the leadership and speaking capabilities. I would wonder, well, where did those come from? Some things are innate. You know, there are people like Malala. Some kids just need the exposure to it. I think they need to channel whatever's going on, whether it's an innate sense of injustice or just a sense of rebellion or a sense of wanting to change things. They don't know what to do with that. Kids have an innate sense of something's wrong. You know, this person looks unhappy or something's wrong about this, but I don't know how to express it. Again, it's that how early do you start question. It's also the willingness of the parent to kind of go after it. Like whatever these questions come up, you have to be kind of willing as a parent to go at it. Yeah. To try. Yeah, very true. How early? I think as soon as your young person or your child asks a question, that means they're ready for the answer or they're ready to explore the answer. Um, and I think you're right. Young people do have an innate sense of fairness. That's one thing a young person, a child, because he got that candy and I didn't get that candy. That is not fair. <laughs> yeah. Well, why do you get to stay up late and I have to go to bed? Like That's fairness one, is yeah. always that hmm. is the entry point to talk about justice because fairness and justice go hand in hand. And I think that that's an entry point to have conversations with young people about everything. And it could be anything Um, from when you're going to the grocery store and you're picking the fruits and vegetables. Well, then being conscious, well, who picks our fruits and vegetables? How are they resourced? How are they paid? What are their rights? Are they living and thriving? So, like, I think it can be anywhere, any conversation. Inequity is ingrained in our culture, in our society. Unfortunately, it's at the in the fabric of our great nation is oppression and equity. And so I think from the kitchen table all the way to, you know, the White House, we can have conversations with our young people about fairness and equity and justice. But I do think the most important thing is to not run away from the conversation. So you said if your kid asks the question you don't know, don't just say, I don't know, or Don't worry. What I used to hear when I was growing up was that's grown folks business or, you know, that's not for a child. Like we would always like minimize that they don't they're not ready for it or they don't know. And there might be things that are too explicit for them, but it's always important if they have questions to engage them and to think about um, child appropriate ways to have the conversation. Um, And when you don't know, my son loves to tell me to ask Siri. (laughs) So maybe my son asked me random information, like if we do see a homeless person, like why are there so many homeless people or how many homeless people are there? You know, numbers or data. Then I'm like, I don't know. So then we ask Siri Mm -hmm. and then we have a conversation about like not just that person is homeless and they made bad choices, but always linking it to the root causes. Well, what causes someone to be homeless? Could it be mental health issues? Could it be lack of resources? Could it be that, like, housing is too expensive and is unaffordable at this point because of gentrification um, and the housing increase? Could it be that there's not enough jobs that folks have that helps them earn enough money to pay? You know, there could be so many things. Um, And so, again, as I have those conversations with my child, I don't have all the answers. We can totally ask Siri how many, um, but we also can begin to dive deeper as we're exploring about, like, the why. I think that's the most young people ask us that question all the time. I'm sure parents hear that all the time. But why? 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 Don't hear that question and cringe all the time. One thing I love to do with my child is to turn it back on them. Well, why do you think there's so many homeless people? And then they have great ideas, 
sometimes they're completely off and you can redirect them. But I think that why is the biggest question that we can encourage in our child because it means that they have a critical mind and they want to know why and that they just won't accept things that people tell them without being critical and analyzing them. So to me, like that is at the root of building an advocate because we don't just accept information at face value. Right. So important. This root causes argument. I want to dig into that a little bit. It's very easy to say, well, there's a homeless person because they're mentally unstable or bad luck or they lost their job. But the why, and you point out so astutely, kids are so good at why. Well, why'd they lose their job? It's very easy and it shuts down the conversation to go, oh, just bad choices. Or, you know, some people want to live out on the street or, you know, kids know when you're faking it and they'll probably come back with more questions. But I would say in the past, just to be honest with myself and with many parents, you just kind of want to shut down that conversation. You're, I'm afraid of it. I don't want to go there. I don't want to get into the root causes. It questions too much of who we are and what we're doing. But if you're really committed to having that kid learn something about this and be willing to change things, you got to go there. Yeah. I love the piece about being willing to change things because sometimes those why... <laughs> Those why conversations turn into, well, now we have to do something about it. Right. Um, and then the kid wants to have a bake sale or wants to give all their, donate all their toys or we need to collect money and give it to people or we need to let that person live in our house. You know, those it becomes the like, now we do something about it. So then you really know you got an activist on your hand. Um, <laughs> but I think the piece that you said that I want to refer return to is just that parents don't want to have the conversation sometimes and that's okay too like don't beat yourself up because every time a serious conversation comes up you don't dive into it it might not be the right moment you might not be in the right headspace you might not want to have the conversation in the moment but please believe that those conversations are always available and always around and i think it's important for us as parents to be willing to have those conversations and not only think that it's a one-time conversation Because homelessness is a conversation today and then tomorrow it might be something else about unemployment and the next day. Like they're always going to come up. Just don't shut them all down. And I heard you say earlier that sometimes kids know when parents are faking it. And sometimes kids may have been trained to just accept what their parents say as the truth. Right. And so I think like, you know, we might we might have those kids who are like, hmm, mom. Dad, really? I don't know. I'm not buying it. That's that's my kid. Actually. Yeah, and that's a pain for the parents, <laughs> but it's actually really good. It is. Really it's good. really good for the kid to yeah. question. Yeah, even and though we may you know. not, it challenges our authority. We may not like it, but it's actually good. Yeah, and that's when you know you have an advocate on your hands because they're challenging the status quo. They're challenging the authority, or or they're even questioning it. Like, could, is that really the truth? Let me dig into that. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think so many other parents want their kids to be compliant and to follow the rules and to just listen and respect and follow. And that means you're raising a child that's going to be a follower and not a leader. And I really want a child who has the mental capacity to make their own choices and to be a leader. So I think that's important. And when we're thinking about the type of children or how we want our children to be in the world. Well, the compliant ones are supposedly easier, but maybe not for the world. There's another easier solution, which is the one-time solution. Like once a year, we go pack up meals for the homeless. Once a year, we give away toys for kids who don't have toys. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, it's okay to do all that stuff, obviously. But the packaging of it as a once a year thing, like once a year, we have some heart. Once a year, we have some compassion. You can see 
when maybe unfairly portrayed like that, it doesn't really work that well. You're not really raising a questioner or an advocate that way. You're raising a philanthropist maybe or someone who breaks off a little part of their vast fortune and gives that to a New York City school for a year. Our challenge here really is to give our children something to work with, something they can actually do or think about or even fantasize about, making a protest sign, finding out more, questioning things, things they can do today, not something that's in the abstract. Yeah. We need to give our young people, our children, the tools to unearth and to dig deeper into the root causes. Root causes are so deep that you have to dig and dig and dig and ask questions and inquire and to research. Things like donating your toys once a year or packing up food, that's not getting at the root causes. You know, it just is looking at, you know, when we do this work, we talk about the root causes are like racism and capitalism and sexism and patriarchy at the roots. And what shows up at the top is homeless people. You know, the, the, the roots of those trees bears fruits like homelessness or children without toys. What people are doing who are, you know, volunteering once a year, donating, they're helping to pick some of those fruit off the tree of inequity, but they're not digging deeper into the roots of the tree of inequity. And so when you're raising a young person to be critical, to ask questions, especially if you have privilege, we don't want that long term to be where now as a person who had privilege as a child, now I'm donating. We want the person who has privilege to really say, well, what are the things that gave me privilege that I can help to interrupt and help to dismantle those systems that gave me the privilege? And then how do I spread my privilege and use my privilege to move other people who have privilege? So when you're doing those things, like, you know, there's no, I don't want to, like, denounce or throw no, shade at give, those things. No, give people, donate. Keep, donate. keep donating, keep volunteering. Donate. That's all good stuff. Yes. It's and it's about, like when you're doing that, yeah. do, the, do the root cause analysis as well. Right. That like, They need a context. They yes. need a, why do we do this? And it's not that we just do it one time a year. Right. And it's not do it because it's the, it's the right thing to do or it makes us feel good or because we're good people. That's not what we do. It We do it because there's systems of inequity. We do it because there's not access for certain people. And we have to make sure that when we're doing that work to like support communities that don't have a lot of resources, we're also doing some work within the communities that have a lot of resources to shift their beliefs, their culture, their power um, to really like make the shift that we need in our country. If we're thinking about what parents need to remember about this very wide-ranging conversation that we've had, what are the questions we need to ask? What, do, what are the questions we want our kids to ask? What is the cause you believe in and what do you want to fight for? Is that a good place to start for a kid to understand how to be an advocate and how to care about things like social justice? That is a, a good place to start. And I know it. It's going to range depending on your child's age and age appropriateness. It could totally start from that question of fairness because that's where young people are often advocating for things that are not fair and things that are not right. And then pushing our young people to be like, what can we do about it? I think those are good places to start. I also think that maybe a place a parent could start before they even start the conversation with their child is to think for themselves. What do you care about, parent? What is the cause that is true to your heart? What inequities or injustices do you see or witness or even maybe personally experience that you want to advocate about? And if parents begin to 
parent for liberation, for their own liberation, for the liberation of others, then their children will be able to witness them and see them do that and might want to join along. Hey, Trina, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Look for Trina's podcast, Parenting for Liberation, on Apple Podcasts. Look for show notes about this episode at goingbabycrazy.live. This edition of the show notes will include a list of the books that we talked about that Trina mentioned, so you want to check that out. See you next time. I'm Lee Schneider. Thank you for listening to this episode of Parenting for Liberation. I hope that something shared on this episode gives you a strategy or tool or idea about a liberated parenting practice you can try out in your home. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please rate us and give us a review so that we can reach more liberated parents. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Do you have any questions or comments or feedback? Please email us at parentingforliberation at gmail.com. Time for thinking ahead The world has changed so much